Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every day, even if I don't want to. I get it. It's not always easy. We're in this together, and we have some great people helping us along the way. Now, many of us as parents, teachers, coaches, and mentors in the lives of children are having issues coping with the complications and frustrations that the pandemic has brought upon our lives. But just imagine what the children are going through. Even before the pandemic started, the rates of childhood anxiety and depression were skyrocketing, with one in five kids under the age of 18 diagnosed with a mental health disorder. In fact, more kids are affected by mental illness than asthma, peanut allergies, diabetes, and cancer combined. During the pandemic, numbers are rising, and post-pandemic, those numbers are expected to climb even higher. How can we raise resilient, self-reliant, and secure kids in an age of anxiety? My next guest will impart that the sweet spot for raising resilient, self-advocating kids who can cope with stress and learn from their mistakes is scaffold parenting, a framework that posits that parents are the scaffold that provides the structure and support for the child as he or she grows up. Parents are there to protect and guide, but not to impede learning and positive risk-taking. Harold S. Koplowitz is one of the nation's leading child and adolescent psychiatrists, the founding president and medical director of the Child Mind Institute in New York City and San Mateo, California. He has been repeatedly named in America's Top Doctors, Best Doctors in America, and New York Magazine's Best Doctors in New York. He has appeared on Today, CBS News, CNN, The Oprah Winfrey Show, and Anderson Cooper 360. And he is quoted regularly in the New York Times, USA Today, and the Wall Street Journal. He lives with his wife in New York City. I want to welcome you, Dr. Harold S. Koplowitz, to how to talk to kids about anything. It's my pleasure, Robin, really. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. Before we jump on in, can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and what got you so interested in helping parents to raise resilient, self-reliant, and secure kids in the world? So I've been passionate about taking care of kids since I was in medical school and originally actually thought I was going to be a pediatrician. Um, I like kids, and the trouble with pediatrics is that kids get better very often by themselves, mm -hmm. and when they are very ill, they need uh, a specialist. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the topic that always intrigued me the most was behavior and emotion, and so it was either going into pediatric neurology or child and adolescent psychiatry, and I'm old enough that when I went into child and adolescent psychiatry, um, we were just getting brain scans like CAT scans and eventually functional MRIs. Mm -hmm. And the whole uh, concept of pediatric psychopharmacology, that there was the ability to use medications if a child was properly diagnosed and really change their lives the way pediatric neurosurgeons and cardiologists had been doing for years was incredibly intriguing. Mm -hmm. um, and about 11 years ago, um, I decided that while I had spent my entire career uh, in academic institutions, that it was time that we had an independent, academic, nonprofit <clears throat> that was exclusively dedicated to tra transforming the lives of children and teenagers who were struggling with a mental health disorder. And the concept was really simple. If you think about childhood cancer, a place like St. Jude's Children's Hospital, a relatively small 78-bed uh, hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, started by a TV star named Danny Thomas, has transformed childhood cancer. Mm -hmm. They have, you know, the, the death rate from pediatric leukemia 50 or 60 years ago was 94 out of 100. And today it's four out of 100. Mm. So they, 
did that by laser-focused research, <clears throat> by compassionate care, and also by making sure Americans thought about childhood cancer differently, so that when you saw a bald-headed kid, you embraced them, you didn't run away from them. Mm -hmm. It wasn't something that was contagious, it was something that needed more research and better care. And so our thought was, as you just said before, that they're the most common illnesses of childhood and adolescence are mental health disorders. Mm -hmm. There are 17 million kids, which means everyone listening to this podcast knows and loves one of those children mm -hmm. because if it's not your own child, it's your niece or nephew, or it's your best friend from college's child, or it's your child's best friend. So that if cancer, which only has 15,000 kids a year, has done so well with that kind of laser focus, we thought that it was essential for us to, to build the Child Mind Institute. Mm. And so, frankly, I have to tell you, I recommend this to everyone when you talk to your children. If you feel passionate about what you do, it doesn't feel like work. Mm -hmm. So even in the middle of COVID, which is more challenging than ever, because on uh, March 15th, we had to close the doors to the physical sites in California and New York. And within 48 hours, we had to become a tele-mental health product, so to speak. Um, that certainly is challenging, but it's me. It's meant that we've had to work so much harder. In the past few months, we've done 160 Facebook Lives where we are talking to parents about how to parent during COVID, mm. and we have 765,000 uh, likes on our Facebook page and 130,000 followers on Instagram, which I find fascinating. <laughs> I know that information since I'm a doctor, but it becomes essential if you recognize that the first line of defense are informed and well-educated uh, parents. Mm -hmm. That when they know that these diseases are real, common, and treatable, their children have a chance to grow up to what they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. You know, that they should have the freedom to play and the freedom to have fun and love and like friends and family and to work and mm -hmm. to be successful in school. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, I, I know I sound a little bit like a commercial, but I actually believe what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. I do love being a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Mm, mm, well, I'm so glad that you are. You bring so much information and kindness uh, to this practice, and it's so important that we hear from you today. In order for us to get our bearings, can you tell us about scaffold parenting and how you explain the makeup of this scaffold from pillars to planks so that we can best support our kids through their childhood in today's world. So I'd like parents to think of the metaphor that our children come very often to life with their own blueprint. You know, DNA and, the, and nature are in many ways much more powerful than nurture. Mm. But we have a real important role to make things better or to make things worse as parents. Right. And so one of the things that I'm, I'm always talking about is the fact that as the child grows or as the building is being built, parents are the scaffold. They are that piece of material that constantly is moving to secure the child as they go through different phases. And, and if we could think about it in a kind of structured way that the pillars of a scaffold are structure, support, and encouragement. Mm -hmm. And you keep going back to that because we're going to use those words also for ourselves when we think about taking care of ourselves so that we are a strong scaffold for that building. So, you know, structure is simple, you know, established routines, house rules, ways of thinking and very clear communication style. They're kind of crucial for your child's sense of security and stability. And support is not only financial support, it's emotional support mm -hmm. and emotional empathy and validation. Uh, this will help kids to learn how to process difficult feelings because it's not always gonna be good. There are gonna be failures, and what you really want is kids to bounce. You mm -hmm. want that resilience. Mm -hmm. And then there's encouragement. Mm -hmm. If you try to push your kids not only out of their comfort zone into you know, a zone where they can learn, but not too far out into a danger zone where they shut down mm -hmm. on you. you know, we should think about what holds up the planks. And again, it's patience, it's warmth, awareness, mm -hmm. dispassion, mm -hmm. monitoring. And we have to keep going back to it. Because one of the things I talk about in the book is that you're not going to get it right all the time. And unfortunately, I, I share my own examples of where I'm still kicking myself thinking I knew better and yet I oh. wasn't as passionate or yes. I wasn't as patient or 
I just wasn't as encouraging as I should have been. Right. Well, you and I agreed before we even got into this interview that we were going to be honest about our own, you know, frustrations and the the times when we failed and when we needed to pick ourselves up and try again, because even with the knowledge that you and I may have about children and raising children and parenting, you know, we make tons of mistakes. Um, and we are also existing in this world. And for for this moment in time, when we are, you know, exhausted from months and months and months and months of, you know, dealing with uh, being in uh, some kind of hybrid schedule in life, uh, whether it's, you know, being in virtual or having disruptive work routines or school routines for me with young children and for you who had children living with you for a time, adult children. You know, this is interesting. I think it can be during a pandemic or not. When we're talking about you know, what you just mentioned about self-care and, and I would go further than that from your book, Parenting Burnout, where, you know, it may be before the pandemic that some parents would agree with statements like I'm in survival mo- uh, mode with uh, as a parent or when I get up in the morning and have to face another day with my children, I feel exhausted before I start. I'm, I'm guessing that number went up dramatically during this very uh, intense time. I think more people than ever probably feel that way, maybe not every day, but often enough. So what advice would you provide to parents who are listening in on this, or even educators, coaches, people are working with children, but it's so intense now that maybe they are feeling burned out. There's almost a feeling of not being able to escape, and they don't know what they can do better given that they are burned out and there's they don't feel like they have the same access to things that will make them feel better so that they can do better. So let, let's, let's think about that a lot. Uh, my, my favorite uh, metaphor is that every time I go on an airplane and the flight attendant says, if the air pressure drops and the masks come down, please, if you have a child, put it on the mask on yourself first, mm-hmm. not on your child. Mm-hmm. And I just think our DNA says, no, no, I have to I have to save my child first. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, the reason they're telling you that is that <clears throat> if you put it on yourself, you can get some oxygen and then you can put it on your first child, you can put it on your second child. Or if your child is fussy, you'll still have the energy because you'll be getting, you know, mm-hmm. oxygen. In. Mm-hmm. And that's the essential part of scaffold scaffolding parenting is that it's essential that we have some strength and during covid it feels like you're in a marathon that frankly is muddy Mm -hmm. that and it's not just slippery muddy it's muddy up to your ankles Mm -hmm. or muddy up to your knees where you're thinking i can't do this anymore Mm -hmm. you know i need a second wind a third wind i hate marathons can't we just sprint through this (laughs) you can't you just can't so what are some of the simple things since gyms are not all open right. and, or we don't feel open. confident enough to go right or we're right. just overwhelmed right. overwhelmed right? right and give me some more netflix and some you know carbohydrates <laughs> <laughs> and i'll start drinking at five it's got to be five o'clock somewhere yeah so we step back and we go to basics so number one sleep mm-hmm. forcing yourself to get a routine so you can give your child a routine saying no matter what, I'm gonna go lie down in bed at 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock, and I'm going to not look at the screen, I'm gonna look at a real book, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not gonna look at TV or my laptop, I'm just going to try to um, settle down my brain and get to bed. And because there you are, hour, you're, you're, you're binge watching Cobra Kai, and all of a sudden you look at the clock and you realize it's, it's 2.30 a.m. It's o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, yeah. it's like, what am I doing? I, Not that that's so, happened in our house, I never. mean, actually <laughs> did, but like, you know, I mean, it's like you turn I didn't and understand like, what Oops. binge watching was before. Exactly. I really mean it. I was always too busy. I, I can, when someone says to me, did you see, you know, uh, Bridgerton, I go, uh, yes. They said, well, what episode? I'd done all of them. Yeah. I was like, I I I never watched any of these programs. And all of a sudden I'm like, I've got to go watch my episode of Anne with the E. Oh, maybe, maybe it's now seven episodes at a time. And you go, what just happened? So if we go back to some basics and we can restart, because remember the beginning of the new year, we restart ourselves, Mm -hmm. but you can restart whenever. Basically, we start with sleep. And the idea of also getting up in the morning and forcing ourselves to do the typical hygiene of, you know, pretending we're going out to work, 
putting on different clothes than our sleep clothes, um, and then getting a routine of we're going to eat breakfast together as a family. Maybe we're going to skip lunch as a family. We're just going to leave it open, and then we're going to have dinner. And we are going to have a routine, and we're going to give ourselves the uh, – there's two other things we have to do for self-care. One is we have to exercise. And even if you hate exercise, mm -hmm. then please go for a 20-minute walk. That's all I'm asking for. And you don't want to sweat. You walk slowly. Eventually, walk briskly. 20 minutes of exercise gets blood to refresh your brain. Your heart is a pump. It moves the blood all over your body. If I can get you to get a flushing of your brain with new blood and new oxygen, that's a terrific step. If you could really exercise for the 20 minutes and jog or walk brisky and, and get your heart rate up, that's terrific. But if all you could do is go for that one mm -hmm. walk, if it's cold outside, bundle up. Mm -hmm. the, the, the other thing you can do is mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean transcendental meditation, nothing complicated. Mm -hmm. I want you to just sit down, escape from your children, escape from your spouse, sit in a quiet place, and just for one minute be with your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Close your eyes, and if all you hear and feel is your heartbeat, or the noises of the traffic, or the birds, or the rustling of the radiator, it doesn't make a difference. And if bad thoughts come into your head, let them stay. Mm -hmm. Don't fight them, just be with yourself for one minute. I liked, that, I liked that one of the things that was said in, in your book around that was a quote from Dr. Emanuel who said, part of self-care is not owning other people's BS. So it's like <laughs> you're doing all of these things that you're mentioning. Um, and, and I've moved to like brisk walk with a friend, which is like mental and physical health, you know, new right. friends, socially distant walks. It's amazing. You, you can't take on all the garbage that other people are throwing constantly within your house, outside of your house, political, you whatever it is. You have to escape. And the other thing is I like routine. I, I do think that once a week, if you're not going to church or synagogue or you're not praying five mm -hmm. times a day, it doesn't make a difference. Once a week, mm -hmm. I'd love you to be grateful in front of your child because it's being grateful in front of yourself. Mm. Why are you grateful? Are mm -hmm. you grateful that you're healthy? Are you grateful that you recovered from COVID? Mm -hmm. Are you grateful that you know, you're eating a delicious meal? Being able to say that out loud and then ask everyone else at the table to do it, yes. again, takes us away from, oh my God, the sky is falling. Yes. Oh my God, there's political divisiveness. Oh right. my God, there's you know financial, the economy is in terrible shape just once a week yes if you could do that so those are things by the way that really do self-care mm -hmm. i mean there's so many others we can right. do, but if you would but those are good that, right that's a little bit more gas in the tank and then i need parents to have some energy because right if they don't have energy they can't scap they they can't stand up so they can't scaffold exactly kids. exactly that's putting on that mask first and you know, you talk about, you know, making sure that you can draw another blueprint. You know, how can we draw another blueprint if we see a problem? How can we change that problem, move that problem forward to a solution if we don't have the energy? So one of the things that I I feel like it's important to talk about just because you're, you basically just brought it up where we're constantly feeling like the sky is falling. We wind up doing something that you point out in your book as negative tracking. And I've seen this before many times. I mean, we all can have personal pity parties when we see the negative from time to time, but negative tracking with children can really be a problem. So can you talk about what that is, what we're talking about here, what it looks like and sounds like and how we can right that wrong? So I, I do think that part of the parent's DNA very often is fixing things. Yes. You know, it's not a scaffold. It's like, let me just go get the plaster and the brick and I'll just fix it, which is really not healthy. Mm -hmm. But that's what negative tracking is doing. It's, it's kind of like, what's wrong with this picture? Mm -hmm. You know, please, um, you know, stop chewing with your, stop eating with your mouth open. Mm -hmm. Please sit up straight. Uh, and also, if you kind of know that the kid is very hyperactive or the kid is very anxious, really pushing them and pointing it out. Mm -hmm. You know, can you look me in the eye? Can you please sit down? Could you please stop fidgeting? Stop. That negative tracking is really problematic. And the one thing parents could do immediately is stop and say, 
can I say three positive mm-hmm. things to my child before mm-hmm. I track the negatives? Mm-hmm. Very hard to do, mm-hmm. and it won't get results right away. It takes a few weeks before your kid figures out, hey, my parents are really saying, you know, they're catching me being good. Mm-hmm. And it feels I'm, good. You know, this is like, is, did someone replace my parents? You know, but that's what you have to do three for one. The yes. second thing that happens is confirmation bias. The same way that we all are watching Fox or we're all watching MS, uh, NBC, so we only believe what we believe. Mm-hmm. Confirmation bias is the other thing parents do that they have to stop because even though it's hardwired, we have to rewire, which is this is the good kid, this is the bad mm-hmm. kid, this is the lazy kid. Mm-hmm. And if we do that, it really presents a problem because the, the bad kid can't get out of the box and the good kid feels anxious that they're going to fail the parent and no longer be good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, this is not in the book, but I remember distinctly when I was in elementary school and I went to a public school in New York City that there was a bad boy. I liked him a lot. He was really smart, um, but he most likely had a bad case of ADHD. Mm-hmm. We were in fifth grade and the school teacher got, our regular teacher got sick for a month and a substitute teacher came in and she figured out that Bruce was really smart. And the rest of us felt like saying, no, Bruce is a bad boy. Why are you treating him like a good boy? Mm. And her positive uh, attitude toward him, her structure, her support, her encouragement, all those pillars turned Bruce into not only a good boy, but he was smart. He was able to show us how smart he was because we didn't have someone doing negative tracking. And it's like that self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like you're bad, therefore you're bad. Right. You are, you know, you're known as the bad kid in class or the bad kid in the house. So those are important things that we can change, but take a lot of work. And by the way, it's not a bad idea to say three nice things or positive, really positive praise to your spouse for every one bad thing that mm-hmm. you say. Mm-hmm. It really will improve the relationship. Mm-hmm. But it's essential if you want to change that blueprint, then you have to say, okay, I have some hard work to do. If you ask kids afterwards, did you notice it? In the beginning, they won't. But after a while, they get used to it. And they're actually very pleased oh, that yes. mom and dad are catching them being good. Uh-huh. And, and for yes. some kids, it's hard to catch them being good, especially if yes. they're very rambunctious or very hyperactive. But they still, there's plenty of good to be caught. Yes, agreed on all of that. It's a conversation that I actually had with my husband recently because it's easy to get bogged down and and frustrated and you're exhausted. So, you know, it's it's easy to fall into those patterns of, of noticing the bad. Now, I bet you some people are listening in and thinking to themselves now, now I can't tell my kid that they're doing something wrong and correct it after listening to this. But being able to provide criticism to your child is actually a part of parenting so that children can grow and develop and become better and stronger. And that's certainly reflected in your book. So how can we give that negative feedback, what we've noticed on what we don't like or don't appreciate to our children in a productive way that's not going to tear them down? And, and can you give us some examples of what that might sound like? Sure. So just think about it for a second. We all, the, the reason why we're being critical is we want our children to be better, right? We, mm-hmm. we don't want them in the outside world to be hurt by behavior that isn't productive or mm-hmm. is ineffective. Mm-hmm. And yet, if we don't tell them the, the uh, criticism in a constructive way, it is not going to be an effective, it's not going to change anything. Right. So I, I think it's really important for us to recognize what's important, what isn't. And, and so I talk about this a lot that, you know, there is certain, you know, catching your kids being good and li- specifically labeling that praise. So it's not good job, but I'm really impressed with how hard you worked um, studying for the algebra test. I, your effort was really amazing. I, 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 I was really awestruck by how often you were studying and, you know, every day. And, you know, I just have to say, job well done. Mm-hmm. Really terrific. So, therefore, if the child fails the test, um, you're able to say, um, I'm not sure you were studying as effectively as possible. Mm-hmm. I think that maybe we need a tutor. And I know you didn't want a tutor, but I think we need someone who is a better teacher than me mm-hmm. or a better teacher than you or someone who will give you more attention than your regular teacher. Mm-hmm. So you're you're essentially saying that, you know, you're disappointed about the grade because that's not all that important. But it's really that you're disappointed for the child that after so much studying, they still didn't get what they, what mm-hmm. they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's a whole bunch of categories 
where I basically tell parents, let it go. Mm-hmm. You know I mean, my favorite line from Frozen, you know, just yes. let it go, let it go. Um, I, I, you know, when I saw Frozen on, uh, on an airplane, because everyone told me I have to keep seeing it. Mm-hmm. And so I saw it. And after I watched it, I said, I really want to interview the songwriter and, you know, the people who wrote this song. Mm-hmm. I am convinced, I am convinced they must either have a child or know someone who is really troubled. Mm-hmm. And I eventually got them on the phone and interviewed them. And um, I think it was the their husband and wife team. I think it was the wife who said, oh, uh, my mother was always screaming at my brother, let it go. Mm-hmm. Let it go. He would never let things go. And I think parents have to let things go. So, you know, there are a whole bunch of insignificant yes. off-task behaviors yes. that literally need active ignoring. Yes. And if that means you have to bite your tongue yep. or get up from the table or, you know, take deep breaths, that's really important because at a certain point, you know, so here, sitting with my 30-year-old, my children, my sons are all in their 30s, and some of them don't, they didn't put their napkin on their lap, you mm-hmm. know, while we're sitting together. Or they are, um, or they're not having the best manners. Do you mean they're mm-hmm. chewing, uh, they're, they're not keeping their mouth closed, or they're, you know, putting their elbows on the table. Mm-hmm. If I want to be able to talk to them about the content of our conversations, or that I have a probing question, mm-hmm. I have to let that stuff go. You do. And I have to hope that they're not behaving like this in front of strangers. Yes. But if they are, it's it's too late. I have to let it go. It's on and them. If I, and if I do that, and I've labeled praise in other areas, then if something is really disturbing me, if there's something about the way they're conducting business that I find mm-hmm. really bothersome and maybe ethically compromising to the way I think, then I am able to talk to them about it with the recognition that I have lost control. Remember, I have 30 year olds and at a certain point, parents have to recognize there is a limit to how much they can do, but you want to be constructively uh, critical. Therefore, you have to let things go. You have to label praise. And then you have to think about the way you would talk to your children in the way that you would talk to a colleague, Mm -hmm. that you wouldn't be as rough with your colleague as sometimes we are with our kids. And considering we love our children more than our colleagues, then I think we have to take this time. This this is work. Being a scaffold parent is work. Yes. Redrawing a blueprint is work. But God, it's worth it. You mean, I agree. Just think mm-hmm. about it. This is, I say this all the time. The, ha- the most transformative day of my life was the day my oldest son was born. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just didn't realize how transformative it was. I, I, you know, the, you, you're in this delivery room. There's a lot of screaming and yelling. And you're, you're so upset that your wife's in so much pain. And then this beautiful baby comes out. And eventually you get to hold the baby and you look at the baby and say, oh, my God, the baby looks like my father-in-law and my mother. Mm -hmm. How is that possible? And all that oxytocin is in the air, but you have a whole new purpose in life. Right. And you really have to keep working at it. You know, no one gives you a license. It doesn't have to be renewed every few years like your driver's license. You know, but if you really take this seriously... And it's a joyful experience, but it takes work. It, it does. does. It does. It takes work. Uh, and, you know, it, it, to your point, if you keep harping on every negative thing that your child does, it does sort of become Charlie Brown's teacher. You know, they just don't hear what the important are. So I, I, I often tell parents that, you got to pick which thing is really important to you that which values um, are are crucial to you in terms of what you you know how you want your child to to present themselves to the world or how you want your child to be with other people because stealing a you know couple of cucumbers before dinner when you just cut them is that really the important part uh, is that like don't eat, I don't want you to eat that before dinner is that the important part or is it you know when your child does something that's hurtful to another person and that's what you want to you know have them hear they're constantly well, on the I, negative they're not going to hear it so I, I would tell you that you know when I look at scaffold parenting and I examine how I do it um, I'm pretty good I think with warmth and with awareness, mm-hmm. uh, I have a lot of trouble with dispassion and a lot of trouble with patience. Oh, dispassion! Sometimes. Yeah, I'm and, and so just you know, in the book, I talk about how Joshua, my oldest son, went to sleepaway camp, and I really was invested in him being successful yes. because yes. I was miserably homesick. My wife adored camp; she went for seven years. Mm-hmm. She's much more athletic than I am, so I, I made sure he knew how to play baseball, and he was a good tennis player, and he was a great soccer player. And off he goes to. 
uh, sleepaway camp. And we can tell from the letters that things are not going well. Mm -hmm. And it's visiting day. And he runs over to us. He's hugging us just too tightly. I said, what's the matter? He said, I want I, I want to go home. Mm -hmm. So we walk into the woods and he says, there's no one here to love me, Dad. Oh. And as soon as he says that, I tear up. And then the kid says to me, Dad, don't cry. And I'm thinking... Where's my dispassion? Do you mean, mm -hmm. I, I, it's all right that I'm feeling for him, but he shouldn't feel like he has to take care of me. Mm -hmm. And I find that, you know, if you're really trying to be a scaffold parent, you have to keep monitoring yourself. In the same way that you monitor progress for your children, you have to say, I could do better than that. Uh, yes. I, you know, th that same child at a certain point said to me, we were, we were in the car doing errands and listening to a radio program, I think it was on NPR, about social anxiety. Uh, you know, it was just noise in the background because he wasn't interested in having, a, you know, he wasn't talking. And we pull up to the, uh, to the house and he says, don't turn the radio off. And I mm -hmm. say, okay. And he finished the program and he turns to me and says, dad, you know, you don't really understand social anxiety. Mm -hmm. You and Adam, his younger brother, you just talk to everyone and you don't think about what you're going to say. Mom mm -hmm. and me... We have to think about what we're going to say, and we have to think about who we're going to talk to. Right. And I thought, what an, first of all, what a self-awareness. Yes, beautiful self-awareness. Mm -hmm. But that I have to remember right. that just because I'm an incredibly friendly, extroverted kind of guy doesn't mean that that kid is going to be that way. Right. And that if I think that's an important trait, I'm going to have to be gentle, and I'm going to have to be able to be supportive mm -hmm. and encouraging, to, and even give them the tools at times of how to how to be more social in the world. Yes, um, but, don't, exactly. but not to be disappointed all the time because he's a, a man he's, of very few words. Then he's a different person. Now, you bring something up there uh, that, you do, uh, that you also talk about in the book about separating our emotions from our children's emotions. We love them. We get swept in to their frustrations and their betrayals and their day-to-day -day problems. That's, you know, normal for parents to, to feel for their children. And you, of course, advise, as you mentioned, that you have to let your own pain sort of take a back seat while talking to our kids about what's upsetting them. Like you, you know, you talked about when you went into the woods or when they're venting about something. So can you talk more about how we can validate them without getting swept in and, and what that conversation might sound like as it might be very intense coming out of the mouths of teens and preteens. It's like feels really big so that we don't then escalate and things sort of explode to outrageous proportions. Correct. And so let's remember about adolescents that they, they, they're burning, they're freezing, they're very rarely cool or warm. Do you mean they hate you? They love you. Yes. So the intensity of the conversation. So you have to understand they're speaking a slightly different language. Their brains are definitely different than a child brain or an adult brain. Um, their prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain in the front, which does strategy, you know, cause and effect, it's not really communicating to the rest of the brain yet. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons Hertz doesn't let you rent a car until you're 25 years old. <laughs> it's not because they're neuroscientists there. They, they just recognize that you know, they're not putting their seatbelts on. They're not mm -hmm. thinking about condoms and helmets when they ride a bicycle. You know, so recognize that the language you're hearing uh, is more intense. But the one thing you don't want to do is minimize it. You don't want to say, oh, that's not so bad. You, you want to remember, have that warmth, that empathy, um, but don't get, as you say, don't get swept away. So listening to someone talk about how unfair the teacher has been mm -hmm. or how unfair the situation is that they, they can't see their girlfriend or they can't hang out with their friends uh, because their, their friends are not being as safe as our family mm -hmm. is. To be able to be empathic, to say, I agree with you. This sucks. This absolutely sucks. And it's worse for you than it is for me. Mm -hmm. That's which, by the way, is a fact. During mm -hmm. COVID, the life of a teenager and the life of college students are much worse than the life for an adult because I've lived more than 60 years and this is going to be just a bad year that I'm going to think back on and say, boy, that was pretty awful. Mm -hmm. But if I'm 16 and it was the first time I was really seriously going to start dating or I had some, I was committed to my football team or to the math team, mm -hmm. I just lost that. And acknowledging it and letting someone feel bad is okay without fixing it. Because that's the part that I know I have trouble with is the dispassion mm -hmm. where I'm not required, I'm required to help support the building, but not fix the building. The mm -hmm. scaffold is not 
putting the bricks and mortar down. And, I, and, and the other piece of this, which I think is very important, is that sometimes our kids are yelling and screaming and we hate mm. the direction they're going. Mm-hmm. It's like a moment like, oh, you're really upset. Let me turn this around. Yes. And- so you were here this morning. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, I have to say this is not turning out. My, you know, my oldest son decided he was going to be a DJ. Mm-hmm. I mean, a DJ. I thought, what? What kind of job is a DJ? <laughs> and, you know, I want a doctor, for God's sakes. You know, you're a great science student. I want a doctor. And we would have these discussions where I would say to him, you know, so that the science, maybe you want to consider being pre-med in college. And he would say, I hate blood. And, you know, I don't really like kids, so I'm never going to be the right Dr. Coppolins. I'll always be the wrong Dr. Coppolins. And, and I realized it was like he was going to be a skyscraper, and I wanted, you know, a ranch. And so if you don't step back and say, remember, I'm giving structure, I'm giving support, I'm giving encouragement, but I am not going to tell him that he has to be something that he can't be. You're not the architect. He's the architect. Since I'm being so transparent, it's very interesting. There were three major white Jewish DJs for a while. It's kind of interesting because it's not a white Jewish thing. So it was Mark Ronson who has gone on to get an Academy Award for work that he's done with Lady Gaga and become an incredible movie uh, um, record producer. There is DJ Cassidy who, you know, gets $25,000 or $50,000 for DJing parties and was actually on the uh, the inauguration concert uh, that was put on every television state, you know, was on every channel. And there was DJ Josh K. So I thought, you know, Josh K was going to follow in their footsteps. And he went to Goldman Sachs for a summer between his junior and senior year, and he drank the Kool-Aid. And I felt like saying at a certain point when he said, oh, no, I'm going to go work for Goldman Sachs. And I think, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? But I didn't. I asked him why he thought about it, why did he think that was creative. I mean, the guy runs his own private equity firm today, and he's really good at it, and he gets a lot of pleasure out of it. But it's okay that he changed the blueprint for himself, yes. that he said, you know what? I need this isn't going the right way. I decided the ranch is turning into a split level, and the scaffold has to follow. And <laughs> really a good parent then you continue giving that structure, that support and encouragement, even if you don't understand why he wants a split instead of a ranch. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's our job to scaffold. And, and hopefully, here's the most important piece, is that once the scaffolding goes down, the kid is going off to college or, or, or to, to, you know, to work, he's going to become you know, a plumber or an electrician, it doesn't really make a difference. But if we've done our job correctly, he knows or she knows when to put a scaffold back mm-hmm. so that if they are in college and they are, their writing is atrocious and they're just struggling, they go to the writer's workshop mm-hmm. clinic school or the learning disabilities program, or they say, I need to see a psychiatrist because my ADHD has gotten out of control right. or, right. or I can't be pre-med because I'm not liking science enough, or I'm having, I'm struggling in this art class where they themselves as mature healthy individuals recognize that there are times we do need to scaffold ourselves but you they'll never learn to do that unless we model that yes absolutely absolutely so we have all had on this podcast because this is what people are here for we talk about tough talks and you talk about that in a portion of your book that it's important that we have these big big talks they're crucial you warn about avoiding our kids questions and shutting them down while you might have told your child to rely on you for good information, to rely on you um, when things go go wrong. Perhaps in the moment, the dispassion does not come through. Your emotions get the best of you. You shut down. You explode. So what advice do you have for those who are listening when it comes to big talks that parents need to have with kids over time again and again, and how do we scaffold communication with our kids? So I I think it's important to remember it's not just the big talk, right? Right. You know, in the 1950s, people talked about the birds and the bees. Right, the one big talk, like one time. (laughs) These are really big conversations, big dialogues. Right. And the fact that your child doesn't uh, actively participate or seems uncomfortable uh, should be signs for you to maybe slow down, mm-hmm. change the, the language, but to make sure that the door is open. 
that's really important. I, I mean, uh, a great vignette, by the way, which um, happened after Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, a colleague of mine called up and said he was so worried his second grader announced at breakfast that he wants to talk about what's going on in the White House. Mm -hmm. And um, and that, you know, he, he wanted to talk about it that night at dinner. So second graders are, you know, seven years old. I mean, mm -hmm. the parents called me, you know, he, he, the father was actually a cardiologist and called me and said, what am I supposed to say? And I said, you know, it's a big talk, but let's let's just remember, listen carefully to the questions. Right. Answer Don't the questions. More, <laughs> right. Don't give more information right. than you need to. Mm -hmm. Wait and see if they want more information and make sure that they can uh, come back if they don't understand something. Right. It doesn't all have to be done in this one uh, episode. Mm -hmm. So in the case of that kid, the kid came back and said, I've been thinking about it. I thought interns are in the hospital. Why are there interns in the White House? Mm -hmm. And the parents were all ready to talk about <laughs> all sex and, and birds and bees. But it was a good example of that's fine. As long as they handled it well, Later on, when that second year, the second grader is now in sixth grade and someone starts talking about that episode in the White House years ago, they'll come back and not be embarrassed to say, you know, what was going on there? Mm -hmm. you, know, how, how, you know, and what a wonderful, by the way, what an incredible, wonderful opportunity to talk about reciprocity. Mm -hmm. And if you're ready to have intimacy with someone and yes. make someone feel good physically, mm -hmm. that you should be ready to receive that back and forth mm -hmm. because you know we know that many girls will just do it because they're being pressured by mm -hmm. other girls or by the boy and not recognizing that you know while we all have rules and regulations of our home but if we want our kids to understand it it is about communication it's about feeling good it's about trust there's so many wonderful things you can have yes. that conversation with especially if you keep it brief you let your child ask questions mm -hmm. and you make sure you haven't turned into a professor giving oh gosh a, a lecture yeah the lecture given and you're too prepared so the big <laughs> talk are sex the big talks are politics the big talk as far as i'm concerned was drugs mm -hmm. i mean we, we were you know remember we all come with biases so as a child psychiatrist i saw lots of kids who had adhd and learning problems and they started using marijuana and the marijuana made it worse particularly for kids who had anxiety disorders sure. they became they had panic attacks so, of course, I didn't want my kids to have it. Okay. So we had to have long discussions about why I was so opposed mm -hmm. to marijuana use, particularly in young brains. And right. I realized I wasn't going to be able to get them not to try marijuana all the way till the, they graduated college. And, you know, they came close to 24. But if I could get them to wait until they were 18 and graduate high school, that would be, mm -hmm. you know, reasonable. And it took a lot of negotiating because I was going to bribe them. I'll buy you any car you want. <laughs> I said, you can't afford to buy any car. What are you talking about? And, you know, so we went back and forth with that where they heard me out. They understood my feelings about it. They shook hands with me. Uh, two of the three didn't make it. You know, one didn't make it through, you know, 11th grade summer. And uh, one after he got to college in December, early admission. But they were able to talk to us about it and right. tell us, I broke my promise to you. This is why I did it. Um, and, and the third one, by the way, you know, you're exhausted by your third child. He actually <laughs> said to me in April of his senior year, by the way, Dad, I think you're getting a little flexible. Uh, I said, what do you mean? He said, I made an announcement to all my friends. I am not going to smoke marijuana until I graduate. So I'm not, <laughs> don't be understanding because I made a deal with you and I'm, I'm going to be the brother. I'm going to be the son who kept it. And, and he actually told all his friends. I made this That's deal. awesome. They, they never passed him the joint. I mean, it yes. was kind of like they were in That was his choice and he made it known. I love it. Yeah, it's important to have those big talks and, uh, you know, follow your child's lead. And I think sometimes people think like, now is the time when I'm supposed to have this conversation. Let's sit down Robin, and I, talk I think about the other it. the important part is that during teenage years, more so, and I'd say 13 all the way to 24, mm -hmm. we lose our influence in the respect that the peer group becomes more influential. Right. But we're still the most influential. Yes. There's a reason why most kids eventually vote to the party that they were raised mm -hmm. in, that, the, that they learned that at the table, the ethics, the political views, mm -hmm. the values from mm -hmm. their parents' you know, breakfast table. Right. And therefore what happens is parents decide to keep quiet 
instead of saying, no, I, I, I think premarital sex is a mistake. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously I can't control it, but let me explain to you why I feel this way. Mm-hmm. Or I think going to church is important. Mm-hmm. Or I'm agnostic. Or it, it doesn't make a difference what the answer is, mm-hmm. but I want you to know how I feel about it. Right. This. Right. No, it's a, it is extremely important to have those conversations. And typically we find that even when we think that our kids aren't listening, they are. And it often is reflected back to us when we overhear them talking to somebody else and go, oh, those are my words. They sound a lot like me. When we're dealing with children who are approaching all kinds of differences as they're going through life, they often have to have the courage to take positive risks and to get out of their comfort zones. Sometimes they do things that we wish they wouldn't do, as we just discussed. But how do we scaffold our kids when it comes to taking risks, especially for those children who, you know, we we feel are, are, are nervous about taking risks. Maybe they do have some anxiety because perhaps they they worry about failing they don't want to put in the effort they worry that if they succeed they'll there's going to be more that's expected of them what should we do to scaffold that healthy risk taking and i think that's really important because again if we look at our dna our dna is to protect our children mm-hmm. i mean we you know animals protect you know the reason why little rat rat pups stay close to the mom is not only to get the the milk from their uh from them, but to also add sustenance, but so that they don't get eaten up mm-hmm. by the other species, mm-hmm. you know, and we protect our children all the time. So naturally, we don't want them to get hurt or be embarrassed. Mm-hmm. And yet there's the need to push them out of that comfort zone into a growth zone. And we do that um, slowly. Do you mm-hmm. mean it's kind of like not throwing them in the deep end of the pool, but by positively Uh, when they do take the kickboard and go all the way to the deep end of the pool from the shallow end, that we we specifically praise them and say, boy, that was brave. That was really important. And and many of my colleagues uh, who shared their vignettes talk about raising brave children, Mm -hmm. that even though their genetic material was more on the anxiety side, there was the fact of, yes, I'm going to if they I'm going to encourage them even if they're going to fall off the scooter right. or fall off the the little tricycle because they're going to be applauded and they're going to be you know really reinforced for taking those extra few steps away from mom and dad and it really requires us to fight our own nature so in the book I tell the story about how my anxious son comes home in 5th grade and says oh um you know next week or in 2 weeks is the Thanksgiving day uh, you know, the pre-Thanksgiving Day assembly in the middle school, and I've decided to do a rap dance, yes, in, you know, in homage <laughs> of Michael Jordan. And it, it was like him saying, what, I'm going to do surgery you know, <laughs> in front of everyone? I'm thinking, this is my quiet child. This is the kid who's a man of very few words. No, I'm going to do it with Adam. And and I, I am so worried about him making a fool of himself in a, an assembly between fourth grade and eighth grade that, you know, that'll scar him for the rest of his life. Right. And my wife, an artist, an art teacher says, oh, that sounds like a good idea. You know, if I was closer to her, I would have kicked her so right. hard. Right, right. And he says, no, it's going to be fine. I'm working with the dance teacher, a dance teacher. I didn't even know you knew the dance teacher. And we're going, she's helping me choreograph this. Oh, wow. I'm thinking this is the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> And I'm not saying that out loud. I'm talking to him about upside and downside because my by nature, I want to protect him. I've had patients who've talked about these horrible moments that they never forgot, you know. And um, maybe a week later, a few days before the actual assembly, he announces that Adam has backed out. Mm-hmm. I thought, smart move, right? His pen backed out. He said, well, not everything is meant to be. He said, no, I'm going to do it by myself. Right. And, right. And you're like, I'm going to have a freak out right now. <laughs> right? And so, you know, thank God I'm a psychiatrist so he doesn't have to see what I'm really feeling, you know, I'm just smiling like an idiot. And so um, the day comes, my wife works in the school. I, you know, I wasn't there. I call right afterwards and she says to me, he just nailed it. He was amazing. He was dancing, he was spinning on his back and flipping. And it was just absolutely amazing. And so, you know, that's a mother's. And the audience is going crazy, right? Got up and was starting to scream, go Josh, go Josh, you know. So I have to tell you, 
I was so upset with myself that I didn't want to, it was like a Napoleon, you know, Napoleon right. moment. And of course, nothing really changed. You know, it reminds me of, you know, Steve Martin in Parenthood, where right. he gets so excited, the kid, you know, the ball goes into the kid's uh, glove and he wins the game. And it takes Mary Sternberger to say, look, he's still a quirky kid. He's right. still, you know, he's still a klutz. You just threw the ball so many times. So this it was still a brave, brave moment. And right. I did give him great praise for being brave. What really blew my mind is fast forward to my son's 30th birthday and his best friend gets up there who's very shy. Mm -hmm. And Elias says, you know, I hate talking in public, but I love Josh. Mm -hmm. uh, which again, is so warm and lovely, mm -hmm. you know, and he said, but the, Josh doesn't remember this, but the first time I laid eyes on him, I was in fourth grade and they announced that Josh, Joshua Coppola was from House 52 was going to be doing you know, an interpretive dance, whatever. To, 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 <laughs> even though I was in fourth grade, I knew that was social suicide. But then the lights went off and Josh was wearing a Chicago, you know, a Bulls mm -hmm. um, outfit and with the baseball hat backwards and crisscross started to play. And, and it was awesome. And he got up and, and everyone was screaming and yeah. shouting. And I saw him on Monday after Thanksgiving and there he was with too many books in his hands and his head down. But I talked to my parents, Aaliyah said, so many times about how brave Joshua was. And I yeah. thought to myself, boy, wow. oh boy, parents wow. have to make sure to fight that instinct to yes. protect your kids so that it, what would have been the worst thing if Joshua wouldn't have gotten that rave ovation? Right. It was still a brave thing to do because you could try again. Yes. But the fact that it has a positive effect on Elias and God knows how many other kids in the assembly who had looked at Josh's you know, this studious kid who kept his head down with right. the book that he was that brave really is kind of amazing. And that's what great scaffolding is, that you are supportive, that you are giving them structure, but it's also encouragement. And so that you don't let your own bias get involved. Yes. I mean, that right. no, I want to protect him. You know, if you protect him too much, he's going to be a hothouse orchid. He's not going to be a skyscraper mm -hmm. or or a split level or anything. It's right. just going to be something that needs to be so tenderly cared for that there's no resilience. There's it's no a, it's a very good point. And I, I like that that there was such an effect that was brought back to him later on uh, about how he influenced his friend. But it's also one of those things that once you take those kinds of risks, you're more apt to take more risks because you did it and you found out that it can be successful so yeah, I, think it, I think in some ways it was a transformative moment yeah. i mean he later on did become a professional dj i mean it didn't t turn out to be the life choice but i don't think he would have had the courage to keep standing right. up in front of people you know making music they have to practice yeah. along the way and if you are constantly hovering over your child and not allowing them to take those risks then we push off the time that they are going to take a risk and they're much more apt to not take that risk. So you've got to practice when the stakes are low or lower, I should say, than, you know, waiting and waiting and waiting till when, when is the, when is the time that you actually get to take the risk? Are you 14, 15, 18, 23 or 60? You know, at some point we need to back off in childhood so that those kids are taking those risks, even if it's uncomfortable for us, so that they can learn that they can take a risk, fail, get back up again, or take a risk, succeed, and try something else. So I think that's all really important. I'd love for you, since we're coming to the end, for you to complete this sentence. The key to raising resilient, self-reliant, and secure kids is? Uh, patience encouragement, warmth, awareness, and acceptance of ourselves that we as parents will make mistakes and in the same way that we have to bounce back and try again is the model that we want to show our kids. Beautifully. I so. also would tell you that I mean what I said. I think being a parent is by far one of the most challenging things we're mm -hmm. going to do, but it is also the most joyful and enjoyable thing. I, I, I say it all the time that as much as I love being a dad, my kids just have taught me so much mm -hmm. and it has been, um, you know, the, the best, in fact, the most important role in my life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Give us your top tip. What do you want us to come away with uh, from listening to this podcast and, and really taking in what you're saying? What's your top tip that we should come away with? So I, I would be 
very careful, especially now, of being too hard on ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think that acceptance of our children's uh, assets and deficits are important, but I think even more important right now is being more tolerant mm. of our own deficits, mm -hmm. our own limitations mm -hmm. right now. Thank you. Yes. Taking the long view. We're, you know, this is a very tough time yes. and uh, for all of us. And while some of us suffer more than others, uh, acceptance, tolerance, and, and being nice and kind to yourself uh, will really work wonders as being a better, for being a better parent. Important to let that seep in and, and really hear that because uh, it is a tough time and we're all in this together at this point. We all are experiencing a lot of these frustrations and sadness. We have to acknowledge not only the horrible losses of hundreds yes. of thousands of Americans dying, but the loss of going to school, yes, the, loss, the of, loss yes, you know, of having symptoms or being fearful of yes. getting sick. And I think that's really important for us to be tolerant of not only our children, but of ourselves. Agreed. And, and look, this is a tunnel. Um, there's light at the end of this yes. tunnel. And while I think many of us are experiencing COVID, you know, anxiety, COVID demoralization, COVID fatigue, yes. it, take a deep breath, take your pace yourself. Right. We will get through this and you will get through this. There is a light. The good news, it's not a train coming at us. Oh, there you it's go. Vaccinations. It is, we will get back to a new normal. It's just a matter of tolerance and patience right now. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Give us the resource of the week. Where can we get more information about you, the work you're doing, and your new book? Oh, well, yeah, first and foremost, I think that childmind.org is a great resource every day for parents. Um, 58 million parents have visited, uh, 1.6 million unique visitors every month, and it's scientifically sound information on all topics related to being uh, a parent, a teacher, or even a mental health professional. Mm -hmm. And the good news is that the Child Mind Institute does not take uh, any funds from the pharmaceutical industry, from guns, tobacco, or liquor. Mm -hmm. So you're getting advice that uh, isn't being sponsored by anyone. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, The Scaffold Effect is available uh, at every bookstore, at Amazon, um, and even at childmind.org. And and the good news is that also all the proceeds um, from the scaffold effect are going to the Child Mind Institute, which is the only independent nonprofit in the country that's exclusively dedicated to transforming the lives of children who struggle with mental health and learning disorders. Well, we are really excited that you're doing the work that you're doing. And I'm very excited to get your book out to the world. And I just want to thank you so much for being on the show today, for your insights, your strategies, how to deal with all of the frustrations and problems that come our way when we're raising our children, especially during these tough times. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been my pleasure, Robin. Um, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends, I know you have yours. So let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. You can go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page or let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash drrobin. I'm also on Instagram under Dr. Robin Silverman. And I will be getting all the links that you just heard about and putting them into the show notes so that you have those and you can go follow um, our guests and the Child Mind Institute later on. And if you love this podcast like I did, I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it. I can't tell you how much this is helpful so that more people can find the podcast, but also hear the incredible solutions to the issues that we are having as parents and as educators that we talked about today. If you'll do that, I would truly appreciate it. Thank you for that. And that's all the time we have for today, my fellow parents, leaders, and educators. Thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to kids about anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. So many great podcasts are up there. And as I mentioned, the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. You're here, you're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. Perhaps
perhaps you heard something today that made you think I did that wrong. Um, that's okay. We do things wrong all the time, all of us. And it's all right. We're going to fail. We're going to get back up. We're going to try again. You just remember, you can go back and say, I'm sorry. Can I have another chance to have that conversation, to respond to you, to answer your questions? I get it. I see you. I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. Listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.